market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Connor Matcher. I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper. And with me this week, in a rarer version of events with Alistair away, presumably having a great time on holiday, it's just Rachel. I don't say just as in, like, we've downgraded, but it's Rachel Amory with us today, um, our relatively new still political Yeah, yeah. Opinion. It's less than a month still, so I think still ah, relatively personally. new. Let me know when new becomes, you know, not a thing I should be saying when introducing <laughs> you. Hopefully you at home and listening are, are well aware of who Rachel is, as you'll be av- avid re- listeners of the Steamy and also subscribers to The Scotsman, obviously. Anyway, politics this week in uh, Holyrood has been yet another relatively quiet week, given the madness of earlier on in this year. We've obviously had FMQs today on Thursday as, as we're recording this. Uh, Rachel, you listened to that, to your great delight. And the main story of the day really comes from Anna Sara and Scottish Labour and builds on a story from uh, our own health correspondent, Joseph Anderson, this morning in The Scotsman. Tell us more about that. Yes, um, like you were saying, it's um, it, it feels like we're so used to having weeks of chaos and scandal so it feels quite unusual to have what is essentially a normal week in Scottish <laughs> politics. <laughs> what you mean. Um, so yeah if you haven't had a chance to look at um, our colleague Joseph's piece in the Scotsman it'll be on the website to have a look at because it's really quite interesting. It's basically all about waiting lists in the NHS in Scotland. Mm. It turns out there's a huge gulf between how many people are waiting more than two years in Scotland compared to in England and that kind of got sort of built upon more at FMQs today with Anna Sarwar. He was pointing out that um, over 18,000 people in 2022 died while on an NHS waiting list in Scotland. In fact, almost 6,000 of them were in NHS Lothian. It was the health board that had, I suppose, the worst figures if we're talking about that in this context here. This has gone up pretty much every year since 2017. It's not gone up on every health board, but most health boards every single year since 2017, it has increased. Now, Anna Sarwar is predicting that if that trend continues, we will see more than 20,000 people dying this year while on an NHS waiting list, which obviously is a huge number. And Anna Sarwar is saying that many of these people could have had their lives prolonged or even saved if they'd got the treatment they needed, um, which I suppose is quite significant here. Hamza Yusuf in response, I think, quite sincere, taking it quite seriously, um, quite calm about the whole thing. Some of the other questions at FMQs today were getting quite rowdy and quite shouty. This one was quite calm in comparison, but very much apologising and saying, I, I don't want anyone to be waiting this long for treatment, but we can't really do anything about the pandemic. And it's just one of these things, that how, how many times are we going to hear 
the pandemic is yeah. the sort of the the reason behind whatever is going wrong in the NHS, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, let's let's read out some of the stats and just give people their scale. So I think it's as of March 31st, 7,849 Scots had been waiting over two years for inpatient, outpatient or daycare treatment from NHS Scotland. So that covers anything from, you know, a hip replacement, which you'd be an inpatient for, to a quick, maybe something I had done a while ago, which was um, a little bit of my ear got chopped off, which was fun. Now that's a that's an outpatient surgery or daycare as, as well. You know, so almost 8,000 Scots on that waiting list for two two years but 599 in England, in the whole of England, which obviously has a significantly bigger population. If we look at 18-month waits and the number of people waiting that long, it was just under 11,000 in England and almost 22,000 in Scotland, basically double, I think more than double, if my maths is right, um, on the specifics. And I, I suppose the whole point of this from Anasawa is... Obviously, he's he's got legitimate concerns about the NHS, but you know, and we 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 know that Hamza Youssef has been health was health secretary before his current gig. But fundamentally, this is about Anasawa going to the Scottish public. Look, our NHS is on its knees, and see that bloke stood opposite me. He's the one you blame for that, and he's now first minister. They've not just they've not even sacked him. They've promoted him. Yeah, this is something that Labour are going to continue doing. They seem to come back every single week with the NHS. And I think part of the reason is because they're they're after the top jobs themselves in Westminster and Holyrood. But in saying that, it's easy to give them reason to criticise what's been ha- happening because there are so many problems right now. So it's very easy for Labour to find holes in the NHS to pick at here. Uh, one thing that we're also talking today at FMQ's Anna Sarwar brought up is how many patients are... Basically, they see how long the waiting list is, panic and go and pay for private treatment, which can be thousands of pounds. It can be a horrendous amount of money to um, spend on on healthcare. And it turns out that's increasing as well in Scotland because people are having to wait so long. It does kind of undermine the sort of founding principles of the NHS being free at the point of need. So a bit of a bigger, wider discussion on the role of the NHS there as well. I mean, you you and I are both not health experts, which will surprise no one listening to this podcast that we, we don't have uh, clinical uh, knowledge or anything like that. But you did mention the pandemic and that that was the First Minister's kind of instant response was, oh, well, you know, the pandemic has been the biggest impact on Scotland's NHS in its entire history. Of course, we're going to have problems and all of that. Do you think that is landing with the public? Do you think the public listen to that and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense? Or because we're, what, two years away from the worst of the pandemic, certainly two years um, after the last major lockdown, um, that recency bias of it being just last week, which it was in 2022, no longer holds. I don't I don't know what you think, whether or not this is a something that cuts through with the public, given that the NHS is such an important issue. Yeah, I think that there's no sort of getting around the fact that, yes, the, the pandemic really put a dent in everything with the NHS. And it's going to be, it, as Hamza Yusuf was saying, it's going to be years before that gets sorted. And so it, it's very difficult to sort of see how it can't have had this huge, massive impact on healthcare. But in saying that, if you are 
somebody on a waiting list, mm. it's not going to be very comforting for you. And I think there's so many things post-pandemic, cost of living crisis, the cost of fuel, the cost of transport, um, all the rest of it that's problematic. It feels like things are mounting up and mounting up and mounting up. And so to being told again, oh, well, you can't get to see your doctor because of the pandemic, it's just, it's just going to be another thing that people are going to be annoyed about, aren't they? And how, how does Hamza Yusuf respond to that without looking like he's not taking issues seriously? This, that's, the, that's the question. How do you do it? Because It's, in, it's indefensible to it, a degree, it, yeah, isn't it? It's, just, it's a very difficult one for him, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, we'll uh, shift from Holyrood to Westminster, where we'll have got the latest from Alex Brown, our Westminster correspondent, who's going to talk us through the latest twists and turns in Boris's WhatsApps and also the news about a Labour MP and allegations of sexual impropriety. Hello and welcome to the Westminster Sections podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. Fortunately, I am the paper's Westminster correspondent. And the Boris Johnson train goes on. The 4pm deadline on Thursday occurred this week for the government to submit all of its messages to the COVID inquiry and everything it had asked for. And while at the time of recording, we do not know how much was submitted. We do know that the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, refused to rule out taking legal action against COVID inquiry so as not to give over any details he did not want to. There was a pretty excruciating interview with Mrs Sunak where he was asked repeatedly, why are you withholding documents from an independent inquiry when you have talked so much about transparency? Uh, and, and all various forms of the question, he said, the government has handed over thousands of documents and they're being completely compliant. And it's quite right that some things, you know, set precedent and we've set, we've handed over thousands of documents. I think he said that perhaps thousands of times. So, the government has not been happy about this inquiry. It has perhaps not submitted everything the inquiry wants, in which case there could be some form of legal battle. Either way, rather exciting uh, and kind of surprising and coming out of nowhere, given how often any valid criticism of the government's handling the pandemic has been met with, well, it's not right to talk about that until the inquiry. Well, it's a lot easier to say that when you aren't fully complying with the inquiry. But it's not all perfect for the Labour Party either, who have had to suspend one of their own MPs, Geraint Davies, for uh, he's been accused of sexual misconduct uh, towards two women, both MPs, and also towards perhaps 20 staffers across the last five years. But once again, we find ourselves in a situation where he was not suspended, and then the Labour Party explained what had happened. Uh, it was not revealed by the whips, it was not a party that dealt with it. It's only, he's only been suspended, it's only emerged because a newspaper, well, in this case, actually a website, Politico, spoke to some of these women uh, who made these allegations, and then he was suspended. Much like the Tory party only suspended David Warburton after he was accused of misconduct and photographed with what appeared to be, appeared to be cocaine, uh, he was only suspended when it was made public. And I would also question just how on it the whips are when it was dealt with, it was, you know, exposed by a newspaper rather than the party itself. But this is the case with sexual harassment, right? I mean, yeah, it's a copy and paste statement from the Labour Party. They take it all very seriously. He's been suspended pending a further investigation and the party won't have this sort of behaviour. Well, 
The party upheld a complaint of sexual harassment against Neil Coyle, which was exposed in the Scotsman, and that was just lay on the lay on the file, and he was he didn't did not lose a whip for that. He lost it for something else. So that's how seriously the party deals with it. Uh, and speaking to Labour staffers today, I think what's quite interesting is they don't just want him to be suspended because if you are suspended, for those who don't know, that means you don't have the Labour whip, you don't have access to Labour information, but you can still go on to parliamentary estate. So these women who have made these allegations will be perhaps not want to see him. And yet he will be allowed to come on this day, carry about his parliamentary work, appear in the Commons, all the while these people who perhaps do not want to be around him and are alleged victims facing him in the canteen. That is the reality of working in Parliament. It is completely broken. On that cheery note, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and for all that and more, stay tuned to thescotsman.com. So thank you very much to Alex for that. Let's move on to the big story of the weekend, which I can confirm was the big story of the weekend, having worked the weekend and having to spend the beautiful bank holiday weekend inside watching the Sunday show. Um, And that is the latest developments with DRS. Now, when we were recording last week, there was talk of um, an imminent announcement on DRS from the UK government that arrived, I think, at quarter to ten on Friday night last week and was published at half nine in the morning on the Saturday. And that set out that the Scottish government can have their exemption to the Internal Market Act, provided that they make changes, including the removal of glass from the scheme. Um, This row feels like it's gone on for my entire life. What's your take on the latest twist and turn on it? It's, it's sometimes you need to sort of stop yourself and just remember this is all about recycling. Who would have thought that... Recycling... Is it? I thought it was all about the Constitution. <laughs> Who would have thought that recycling would be the thing to, to break everybody here in Holyrood? <laughs> it's break, broken all of our spirits like the glass on the beach. <laughs> so, yeah, the deposit return scheme, I'm sure listeners are very um, familiar with this proposal. Basically, the idea is you have an extra 20 pence put on the cost of a drinks container. And once you're finished with it, you take it back and get your 20p back. It's a concept we're all familiar with. I know myself, um, last weekend, I was at the BBC Big Weekend in Dundee. When you went to the bar, you got a reusable cup. If you took it back, you got some money back. Mm. Um, So it's not something that's going to be... The idea itself isn't new or controversial. It's how it's been implemented and because of how it's going to be introduced in Scotland at a different time than elsewhere in the UK and it's slightly different as well and because of that they need an exemption from the UK-wide Internal Market Act and there was a bit of a debate as to whether they're going to get that if it could go ahead without it etc etc and as you said last Friday very very late on at night quite a few hours after mutterings in the press and the media this was going to be happening we were told that Yes, Scotland can go ahead with its deposit return scheme and it can get this exemption from this Internal Market Act, but only if it doesn't include glass, which is a huge thing that the Scottish government are wanting. Mm. The problem is glass, essentially. But it's turned into, as you said, an argument about the Constitution, which it seems the strangest things when you actually step back to think about what it actually is in practice and I think was it Lorna Slater I think was saying it's not just broken glass it's now a broken union God that's quite good I mean I, I admit that's quite a clever line yes. but it is, it, it is a little bit of a uh, you've heard this a million times and we've heard it once once again this week um, do you, I mean 
I mean, I've been working, so, so readers of The Scotsman and Scotland on Sunday will, will be able to read on, on Sunday a big piece that I've been doing this week, looking at intergovernmental relations and why we've ended up in these constitutional spats. And I won't spoil the joy of reading that piece too much, but what, do, do you think that this is... On what side of the coin does this row fall? Is it the Scottish government blaming Westminster for the failure of their own delivery and picking a constitutional fight because it's easy for them? Or is it, as the SNP would want us to to say uncritically, the UK government picking their fight over the constitution and kind of rowing back the powers of devolution through the Internal Market Act, which was, when it was introduced, highly controversial? It's, it's difficult. I can, I can see both sides of it. From If you are in the SNP or the Green Party, I can understand. You seem to have had thing after thing after thing with the, the UK government stepping in and stopping. Um, so gender reform, for example, mm. a, um, a bill passed by the Scottish Parliament, then blocked by the UK government, this as well. Um, this morning, Angus Robertson, the Constitution Secretary, was at the Constitution Committee saying that um, certain aspects to the EU retained laws bill at the UK government also impacts on devolution. So it does seem there's a few things, one after the other, quite close together for the SNP and the Greens here. On the other side of things, a lot of businesses have said they don't really want Glass involved in this. This is not kind of how they're wanting. They're wanting the schemes, the deposit return schemes to be more aligned across the UK. Mm-hmm. And a few that I've spoken to since said, this is what we've been asking for all along. This is good. This, let's go with it. So if you're in a business that it was going to be involved here, perhaps you're thinking this looks good actually now. It's fair to say though, isn't it, that the economic argument of which you've outlined there is not the one we're actually having politically, <laughs> is it? I mean, the idea that, we're, that we've got Lorna Slater and Alistair Jack sitting down across the table and going, well, actually we need to do what's best for business and meaning it is nonsense because, you know, this is now the two of them shouting about what the devolution means and what the union means. I think um, Alex Cole Hamilton from the Scottish Lib Dems, he was sort of saying that earlier this week, saying, you know, sort of stop this argument and just sit down and actually do something about this. Um, Obviously, you know, Good position for him because he's not part of either yeah he doesn't have to worry so, um, <laughs> he's not annoying yeah. he's not he can get away with annoying people exactly so that was very much his point earlier today saying you'll know, get on with this and get it sorted for business mm-hmm. do, you, do you think this is a wider pattern of you pointed at GRL you can even go as far back as UNCRC which was the rights of the child um, which was struck down in the Supreme Court for going beyond Holyrood's competence in a to be fair quite controversial judgment by the Supreme Court that academics and uh, have discussed at length. Um, but, you know, you can go back to that. You could go and look at the independence referendum bill as well and the Supreme Court decision with that, and even the decision to go to the Supreme Court on that from the Scottish Government. I would always term it, I think I termed it earlier in the podcast, that, you know, this is the comfort blanket for these two governments. But it's also a self-sustaining pattern of debate where... The SNP are more than happy for things to be a constitutional row rather than a delivery row, because that rouses their 35% base that is pro-independence and pro-devolution. And the UK government, the Scottish Conservatives, are more than happy for it to be a constitutional row because it engages their 25% of, of, the, of, the, of the ground, of the base. And both of them are struggling in the polls. So they need to maintain that 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 base base level of support. I can't help but wonder, we're potentially getting a general election pretty soon. Mm. Polling suggests that the Conservatives are not going to win that election and are now no longer going to be in government after 
more than a decade. So part of me just can't help but wondering, are they just trying to throw everything they can at, at, at that row now because mm-hmm. they've got so little time left in charge? Part of me wonders if that's what is happening here. But like you said, it kind of this whole constitutional debate does kind of suit both parties. If we do get a Labour government in Westminster soon, it be interesting to see how that debate shifts wouldn't it? If it shifts at all, to be mm. fair, because I mean, that one, one of the things that I've, that's been really interesting listening to people talk about this over the last few days for this, this piece that will come out on Sunday is that, you know, a couple of people have gone, well, th- this is a structural flaw in devolution that, you know, Donald Dewar and the architects of devolution in the late 90s were basically didn't think that the UK would ever leave the EU, um, which I think, to be fair, in the late 90s was probably a fair assumption. Um, but also assumed, I think someone put it to me, as like fair weather. It was developed at haste and on the assumption of fair weather. Idea, the idea being that it was highly unlikely that Labour would not be in power in Scotland and or Wales, Northern Ireland, its own separate kettle of fish. And that in reality, you didn't need formalised structures for, for dispute resolution because with Labour in power in Scotland, Labour in power in England, a minister need only pick up a phone to their colleague. And it will be interesting to see what happens when Labour win down south. Um, I think it is a when rather than an if at this point. And how the SNP react to that in the two years of government they will have left during that period. Labour, Labour, if Labour managed to win the Hollywood election 2026, we might see a return to what was termed to me by one... uh, journalist who used to cover the early days of devolution as incredibly boring government well that is one thing it has been um it has been a bit firecracker having um, the conservatives and the smp in the two governments keeps us in a job it does yes let's talk a little bit about further down the line on the same same constitutional battleground you've previously covered in your in your previous jobs issues that are more rural than than you know Certainly I have, having covered Edinburgh myself. Um, highly protected marine areas. Looks like this could be another flashpoint in this constitutional debate. Someone put to me the other day from the Scottish government side that, you know, if they were picking fights with the UK government, they wouldn't be picking the issues that seemingly have come to the fore. Do, do you think that if we have another row of the HPMAs, that will kind of maybe justify that perspective? Could do, yeah. So these are highly protected marine areas. And like you said, to people living in the Central Belt, Edinburgh, Glasgow, it probably means nothing. Yeah, mere, mere culpa, <laughs> to be honest. This is more of a problem up in the Highlands and Islands, um, particularly in the coastal and island communities. So the idea is to create 10% of Scotland's seas as highly protected marine areas, I believe by 2026. And in these areas, um, fishing will be banned. So that's um, commercial fishing in big boats and people out recreationally with a fishing rod. Um, it would also restrict things like swimming and water sports and things like that as well. Um, and this is all to try and protect the environment, uh, help recover the seabeds, which all sounds great, um, but there's been a huge backlash, particularly amongst the fishing community, um, for how this is going to impact on them. And I think one of the problems is, is that a lot of a lot of them don't feel like they're being listened to. Mm-hmm. There's there's a caveat that no community will have this forced upon them. Mm-hmm. But if we are going to have 10%, there are not 10% of coastal communities who want this. So there is going to be a bit of an issue there as to what happens. But like you said, it is again, it seems it's, it seems very remote when you're sitting here in Holyrood talking about this because it's it's something that's up 
up north in the islands. Um, but it's a, it's a huge problem out there. And even within the SNP benches, there are some who have spoken out quite critically. Um, Kate Forbes, um, Fergus Ewing, Alistair Allen, and one thing I can't help but notice is they all represent coastal and island communities in the islands. And the UK government, you know, there's a, there was a report in the Herald last week that they might end up blocking it themselves and and go for from for, for that angle as well. And you know, it's it's one of these things where someone again put to me this week that the UK government has been very good at creating a narrative that these policies are bad and not wanted, and building that narrative up before wielding the axe of. Of, of veto, if you like. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in HPMAs. But that's all we've got time for this week. Next week, we'll be back, I'm sure, with yet more news and the latest from Holyrood. Please do go on to scotsman.com for the latest political news as well as the latest in sport, etc. as well. You can also sign up to our politics newsletter um, by going on to scotsman.com slash newsletter and ticking the politics box. Hopefully we'll see you next week as well. Thank you very much, Rachel. And thank you very much at home for listening. Bye-bye.